Mindfulness Mode 94. You have to do the inner work and the outer work. You can't just change your thoughts and change your emotions and become more mindful. Reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness on Mindfulness Mode with me, your host, Bruce Langford. On Mindfulness Mode, we talk about how people from all walks of life have discovered mindfulness and how it's impacted their lives to help them become more calm, focused, and happy. Thanks so much for joining us here on Mindfulness Mode. To thank you for listening, I'll send you a free copy of my book. I teamed up with author Brian Tracy to create our best-selling book called Cracking the Success Code. You'll learn more about my story and how I became an anti-bullying advocate and mindfulness coach. To get the book free, go to mindfulnessmode.com slash cracking. Enter your name and email and you'll have the book downloaded in no time. Okay, Mindful Tribe, let's get started. I'm so thrilled to have Joan Sotkin here on the line. Hey, Joan, are you in mindfulness mode? Always. Great. Joan Sotkin is a writer, speaker, and broadcaster. She has described herself at times as a spiritual wanderer and has used crystals and minerals for healing and meditation. Her life journey has taken her from work as a teacher, a radio host, network television personality, and mindfulness healer. Health challenges and belief in mindfulness and natural healing have empowered Joan to become a holistic prosperity and mindset mentor. So, Joan, tell us what mindfulness means to you in your life. Well, it means awareness. When I started meditating in 1972, no one was using the word word mindfulness. It was just meditation. (laughs) And uh, I've spent my the last 40 plus years learning to tune in to my inner world in order to improve my outer world. Well, that is fascinating. Joan, tell Mindful Tribe how you got started at the very beginning with mindfulness and with meditation. What inspired you to get involved with that? Well, in 1964, I started taking yoga lessons. That was a long time ago. And (laughs) the only place I could find the teacher was at the Indian Embassy in Washington, D.C., where I was living at the time. So I was getting very into Hatha yoga, and I've always been a peaceful person. And in 1972, I joined, I was in Los Angeles, and I joined a metaphysical healing organization called Astara, and they had hired a teacher, Swami Parampanthi, who was a teacher of meditation and uh, and Eastern philosophy. And so he taught me how to meditate in 1972. And I've been doing it ever since. In 1975, when I was trying to make sense out of life and finding a, a cure for my many physical disorders, I, I gave everything I owned away and went wandering and spent a lot of time in meditation, a good part of the time. So how how much time would you spend each day, for example? Well, there were some days where I would be in meditation for six or more hours. Oh, that's incredible. And tell me the form that the meditation you did took at that time. Was it completely silent meditation? Was it guided in some way? 
Well, I think we're always guided by parts of us that exist in other dimensions. The voices that come and tell us what to do kind of thing. I've come to believe that that's parts of us that see a bigger picture. And so the meditation itself is I just sit down and and close my eyes and take, you know, get my system ready for it and and just sit and my, watch my mind go by. I the one of the first meditations I learned aside from the one that this swami taught me was there was a meditation from uh Krishnamurti and I really liked his meditation where he said imagine that you're sitting on the bank of a river and your mind is the river going by and just watch the river go by don't try to stop it don't judge it just watch it go by and eventually your mind is going to slow down a little bit. I think this idea of having to achieve silence and a quiet mind goes against what meditation is. To me, it's not about achieving anything. It's about just sitting still. And when you, if you use a breathing meditation uh, where you're just watching your breath, for me, it's about getting in touch with what's going on in your inner world. And in order to do that, you pretty much have to watch those thoughts go by and let go of them so that you can really get in touch with what's going on inside of you. For me, when I teach people, I help them get in touch with the kinesthetic experience within their body so that they can get in touch with what they're feeling. Because to me, the thing that we're so missing in our culture is our ability to recognize our emotions, which really are the creative force behind our life stories. Oh, yeah, that's really true. I want to go back, Joan, to something that you said. You said parts of us that exist in other dimensions. And I'm wondering if you can expand on that. Tell us about those other dimensions and what this means to you. Okay, ooh, this is where we get into the woo. Right, we do, yeah. <laughs> the <I'm>... Twilight Zone. <laughs> okay, so we're very aware of three-dimensional reality. But to me, that's not all there is. And, you know, people will say there are 12 dimensions, there are five dimensions. I don't think there are numbers in, the, uh, in, in what lies beyond the physical realm. And, you know, there's a, there was a book I read a long time ago. My mother had actually turned me on to it called Flatland. And it was about a two-dimensional reality where everything were lines or points. And there were squares and trapezoids, but they didn't have any, you know, height. It was just Flatland. Right. And one day a sphere came into Flatland. So all anybody could see was two intersecting points. And when the sphere started telling people in Flatland about Spaceland, it was like, oh, no, that can't be. And, yeah. and people actually got afraid of it and just wouldn't talk about it. And eventually some of the people started to believe. Well, I think that's what's happening now, that we're beginning to understand there are other dimensions. And what happens is we try to give three-dimensional definitions to non-physical reality. So whatever definition we give it is not true. It's just that we, we sense that there's more. And that's where the, the clairvoyance happens and that intuition. I mean, what is intuition? Where do we get those messages from? It's, it's not like something is talking to us. We're tuning into 
what I call the voice of the us, because I see that beyond three dimensions, we're all connected. It's like energetically, we're all connected. And when you meditate and when you allow yourself to let go, you can tune into those other dimensions. Yeah, I really believe that. I really believe we're all connected. And it's very important for us to identify that, I think, in order to move forward and grow. You know, I'm really interested in how you believe our childhood experiences and emotions that we experience in childhood affect our whole life. Can you speak to that? Sure. You got a couple of hours? (laughs) (laughs) I'd love to spend a couple of hours talking with you, Joan. All right. So basically, very simplistically, you have beliefs, thoughts that lead to emotions that lead to behaviors because all those things lead to the decisions you make that lead to your behaviors. Right. But when you're a kid, when you're tiny little recently born You don't have any verbal skills. You're just sopping up all the energy around you and you're responding automatically to what's going on around you. So if the people around you, for example, are filled with fear and worry and longing and, and, you know, that's why, why firstborn have different experiences than the otherborn because the parents are usually a little more tentative with the firstborn. So you pick up your parents' or caregivers' emotions at the time of your birth. Actually, it can actually happen in utero, and they've been doing studies that show that. And then when something happens to you, you respond, and you don't have verbal skills. So you don't say to yourself, is this the best way to respond and what are my options? <laughs> you right. just respond, right? Yes. So for example, in, in when I was a child, which was a long, long time ago, there was a theory that you should uh, feed children on schedule, not demand. Okay. So when I did some healing work and went back in time and back in time with hypnosis and another, a number of other techniques, I, I got in touch with that hunger and and it wasn't satisfied until it was the right time. <laughs> and so as a little baby with no sense of time, I had this really intense sense of hunger and feeling that it wasn't going to get satisfied. And and like if there's any kind of, of abuse when you're a child, I mean, what is the normal response to abuse? It's anger, it's feeling trapped, it's feeling deprived, uh, it's feeling separate. And, and when those things happen on a regular basis, then they, they become part of your identity. One of the biggest things that happens is that people develop a sense of longing because you know, parents weren't given a manual when you were born and they don't un- didn't necessarily understand the emotional needs of this squiggly little thing that comes into their into their life. <laughs> right. And so there's this longing for touch, particularly in our society. Well, that longing, that habitual longing translates into later on into things like under earning where the main feeling is always longing for more, longing for touch, 
Longing for money is the same as longing for touch because when someone pays you, that's a way of getting touched. And over-earning is the same thing. No one needs a a billion dollars. Why do they need more? Because there's always longing for more. So I see that under-earning and over-earning are, you know, opposite sides of the same coin. And that starts in early childhood when there isn't good bonding and there isn't affection and touching and that sort of thing. I was just going to ask you about money and you moved right into that area. Thank you for that, Joan. Yes, and I want to expand on that because I think this is where so many of us are stopped in our tracks. We think we have our act together and then all of a sudden we have money issues one way or another. Maybe we have too much money and we're trying to figure out how to deal with that. Well, I don't have that problem, Joan, but uh, you know, you are an expert on how money and mindfulness relate. So how can we gain control over our lives so that we really can be successful? And when part of that success includes the level of money that we are earning? Okay, so the first thing is that whatever issue you have about money is never about money. Money is just the way you're acting out whatever issues you're acting out. Okay. So using mindfulness techniques... To get in touch with your emotions is going to help you uh, have a better life expression. So when when you're in meditation, you can there there is a, a meditation called Vipassana meditation, right, which right. is one of the old old school ones, where you actually scan your body. Yes. I mean that's part of what you're doing. Well, when you're scanning your body see whether you feel contraction in any parts of your body. And that contraction is an expression of an emotion. When I'm teaching people how to recognize their emotions, because the system I use is recognize, release, and replace. So when you're recognizing them, you basically have to recognize the kinesthetic experience in your body. Emotions don't happen in your head. They happen when these uh, little things called neuropeptides attach themselves to receptors in, in the cells of your organs and different parts of your body. So you need to get in touch with the kinesthetic experience within your body. And then emotions by their nature want to be expressed. And so once you get in touch with that kinesthetic experience, you can actually make the sound of the feeling and that helps to express it. This is a very basic technique. And when I do this with people, they start out with like, ooh, you know, little tiny sounds. Mm -hmm. And the idea is to get to the, ah, you know, really express the sound. And, And then you can actually ask yourself, what would I rather be feeling? And all of this, I've done a lot of this in meditation where let's say I want to learn how to feel safe. That was one that I had to learn. Yes. Well, what, what does safe feel like? Where do I feel it? What is, what is safe? And to, to use the meditation, uh, the affirmation, I am safe. And allow myself to not just say it in my head, but to imagine what it feels like in my body. And this is done very easily in meditation when, you, when you've you know, pushed aside all the, the distractions. 
I see. So you're obviously very successful and you really understand this very deeply. So how do you think you arrived there? Was it, do you attribute all of this to the hours you spent daily in meditation? Is that what was life-changing for you? No. First of all, I came from a family where the spoken rule was Satkins don't feel. Okay, so it's not like I was coming from a family where we learned to express our feelings. Right. Um, my father was pretty shut down. We were the only Satkins in the country, and my father was a little neurotic, and he used to have these rules for Satkins, and one of them was Satkins don't feel. When I got to Codependence Anonymous many years ago, they would clap when you told them how you felt. <laughs> it was like... Oh, that's fun. <laughs> so I got the picture that feeling was a good idea. Okay. And so I decided to learn. I went to therapy and I decided to learn how to feel. And there, you know, this was back in the early 80s. And so there wasn't a whole lot of information about this. There was information about healing the wounded child and uh, codependency. I got into all the Bradshaw books, but um, I realized that I had, the only way I could learn it was by feeling what was going on inside of me. And it wasn't easy. Uh, I had a deal with the therapist at the time that if it got too intense, I could call her up and she could <laughs> stop it for me. Yes. And, and, um, it was, you know, when I started getting rid of the shame and the anger and uh, the feelings of deprivation, and, and this has been going on for a really long time. Even recently, I've gotten in touch with stuff like the whole touch piece, and uh, now I've been looking at fear of success and fear of failure. And so it, to me, it's, a, it's an exploration what I've learned is that there are no negative feelings. People use that expression, negative feelings, mm -hmm. negative emotions. They aren't negative. They're just uncomfortable. And when you allow yourself to feel the uncomfortable feelings that are stuck inside, they don't last forever. You just have to go through them to let them go. And that creates a lot of healthy behavior because you're not acting out these repressed emotions through everything that you're doing. So we really need to allow ourselves to feel those feelings that we would maybe rather not feel. Absolutely. And because we have this idea that it's bad to be uncomfortable. So the idea is to understand that all of those emotions are parts of you. To me, the, the path of mindfulness includes self-awareness. And when you begin to become aware of the emotions that are the creative force behind your life stories, that's part of mindfulness to me. And, and as I said, once you allow yourself to start feeling the feeling, it's not going to last forever. It might get very intense and you might make a, a, an, an arrangement with someone to, to do this work so that if I call you, I can tell you what's going on. Uh, you, you have to do that. Otherwise, you're going to stay stuck where you are. When people tell me they're stuck, it's usually because they're stuck emotionally and they're not willing to move through the emotions to the other side where it can be very clear. Ah. 
So it's not so much that they don't know how, it's just that they're not allowing themselves to do it. They don't, right, and they may not know how. I mean, uh, particularly men were not taught how right. to express emotions. And it's amazing because many of my clients are men. And so we start out with the simple, what's the kinesthetic experience in your body? You don't have to have words to be in touch with your emotions. Emotions weren't created with words. They're kinesthetic experiences. And that's what you need to get in touch with. Emotions never exist by themselves. It's like uh, notes. When you're singing notes, there is the note and then there's overtones and undertones. And the same thing with emotions. I might be angry, but it might have uh, a piece of betrayal or violation. So there's 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 nuances to feel to emotions, but you don't have to have a a good emotional vocabulary in order for you to express emotions. Well, it's fascinating, and you've put so much of your expertise into a course you're working on, a Udemy course. Tell us about that and what form that is taking. Okay, so I decided I needed to do a course on Udemy. Yes. <laughs> you know, and I, I happen to like standing in front of a video camera and talking. Yeah. I, I had to get it good as it as I am sitting in front of a mic and talking, which is a whole different ballgame. Anyhow, the course is called Financial Freedom Formula, a Holistic Blueprint for Success. And in it, I my whole thing with prosperity, and I mean that's my shtick is that you have to do the inner work and the outer work. You can't just change your thoughts and change your emotions and become more mindful. You also have to learn financial skills because money doesn't take care of itself. You have to learn how to take care of it. And so the course is a combination of what are simple things you can do because most people resist taking care of their money because they bring their shame and their anger and all that stuff to their money. And the idea is to be able to just deal with the money from a more detached uh, place. So I'm teaching very basic financial skills and explaining this whole theory about how our emotions create our life, are part of creating our life stories. And, and I go into the recognize, release, and replace thing that um, helps you alter your emotional habits if you're willing to overcome the resistance. And I also have a piece in there about reprogramming your subconscious so you can overcome the resistance. And you tell exactly how to reprogram your subconscious, I take it. Yeah, well, in my book, Build Your Money Muscles, I introduced the power word technique, which is based on one of the energy psychology techniques, Be Set Free Fast. I had written the manual for that uh, with the creator of the technique, Larry Nims, who was a clinical psychologist. And uh, I didn't want to put the whole thing in my book, so I kind of condensed it down to the power word technique, and that's what I'm teaching in this course. Fascinating, absolutely fascinating. Joan, I've worked in the field of bullying prevention for some time, and I've seen how mindfulness can really make a huge difference in the lives of kids or adults who have been bullied. Now, you understand this in a whole different level because, of course, sometimes we bully ourselves or, or we have responded to childhood bullying and that emotion is still being carried, carried with us. But do you have thoughts or a story about bullying that you can share with us? Well, I, I was never bullied because I've always had this 
don't mess with me attitude. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I was tall when I was a kid. Yeah. And I was a leader. So no one picked on me. Yes. And, and, and when I was, and remember, I was born in 1940. Okay. And, and the world was a lot more peaceful when I was young. I mean, we didn't have to worry about being abducted and we rode our bicycles and we walked to school and uh, the helicopter parents didn't exist. And it was a very different world. Right. So that bullying wasn't something that was part of my experience as a child, which is not to say that no one in my age group was bullied. It was just it was just gentler. There were fewer people and life was a little easier in back in the day. Yeah. Yeah. Well, those really were the the good days as you described them because it's true. There's so much focus now on on the dangers and personally I think, you know, focusing on something can cause it to be manifested and that just seems to happen. What do you think about that? Well, there it's true, but there were also fewer people Sure. You know, right now we're acting like rats in a cage because it's so crowded. And and it's like when I started my business many years ago, there were very few people who were entrepreneurs. My father was an entrepreneur and both my grandfathers were, so it was something that wasn't foreign to me. But now look how many people are trying to go into business for themselves. And when I first got onto the Internet 20 years ago, there were only 500,000 sites right. all over the world, the entire world. There were no shopping carts. There were no. no, I mean, and, 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 and it's gotten really difficult to make a living online because there's so much competition. And as I said, we're acting like rats in a cage. And so uh, it's a matter, I mean, the kids who are born today are more tuned into how this whole thing works. But to me, that's why mindfulness is so important because it gets you back to the true nature of humanness, which there is a peaceful spiritual core. I mean, we had to go through the caveman thing and all that stuff to get where we are today. But there are times when we still act like cavemen. And and I think the the word is that it's time for us to really understand what uh, being civilized and, you know, the Christian ideals, what those are and to actually live them. And so I don't think you can just stop bullying. I have to, I think you have to address, uh, uh, problems in, in society in general, the poverty, the, the corporate overreach. I mean, there's so many things going on that are causing people to be angry and feel powerless. Yeah, there really are. It's just incredible. And as you describe, you know, we're rats in a, in a cage. Yes, we're, you know, the population has just risen to the point that it does feel like we're crowded. I, I really resonate with that. Joan, my next questions are part of the multi-mode round. Just short 30-second answers are perfect. Here's the first one. Who's one person who has influenced your mindfulness practice? Well, Swami Paramponthi, <laughs> when he said to me, worrying is a waste of time, I thought to myself, what a concept. And I've spent many years learning how not to worry. <laughs> yeah. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Joan? Well, it's helped me get in touch with them and, and helped me learn to reprogram 
my habitual emotions when necessary. So tell us how breathing is part of your mindfulness practice. I do deep breathing every day. I mean, for me, it's essential rather than just breathing, breathing. I do deep breathing. Anytime I feel myself contracting about anything, I mm-hmm. just will take five to 10 deep breaths. Uh, when I get into, sl- into bed at night, I take uh, a number of deep breaths just to kind of let go of the day. I think anytime you're under stress, it's really important to do deep diaphragmatic breathing, not breathing from your upper chest, but breathing from your abdomen. If you could recommend a book that's related to mindfulness, what would that be? Well, you know, any of the meditation books are good. I think it's really important to to do this emotional piece. And one of the most uh, important books I've read recently is called uh, Childhood Disrupted, How Your Biography Affects Your Biology and How to Fix It. And uh, it's, it's a remarkable book that helps to really explain how adverse childhood experiences affect your life in the present. And I'll put that into the show notes as well as your own book, Joan. Joan, can you share an app which helps you to be more mindful? Well, you know, I use a timer when I take my naps called Insight Timer. Right. But I don't use an app. I started meditating, you know, in 1972. So there was no such thing as an app. So it didn't become part of my life. So what advice would you give a person who's new to this whole idea of mindfulness and they'd like to start using it in their life? Sit still for five minutes a day. Well, actually, one of the the exercises I give to some of my clients is never go through a yellow light. In other words, when you come up to a yellow light, don't put your foot on the gas. Stop. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which is really difficult for type A people. Yes. And, okay. So that to me is one exercise. The other is sit still with your eyes closed for five minutes. Very good. On prosperityplace.com in the free section is a book, uh, is an ebook with instructions on meditation. Excellent, because I was just going to say, how can Mindful Tribe learn more about what you do and how can we connect with you? At prosperityplace.com is the basic place and uh, that kind of leads you everything else. Oh, that's just great. Joan, it is fascinating talking with you. And like you said, I'd love to spend a couple of hours or maybe (laughs) four or five just sitting and chatting with you because you are just so knowledgeable on this topic. Thank you so much for joining us on Mindfulness Mode. It was my pleasure. Thank you for asking me. You're welcome. Bye now. Bye. Thank you so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For insightful blog articles and show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by clicking on the iTunes link on our website and leave a rating and review. In appreciation, I'll mention you at the top of an upcoming show. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.